Daniel Ryan Day begins this episode of the Discover the Word podcast with this question. Worship. What comes to your mind when you hear the word worship? And since you're listening to a Bible study show like Discover the Word, your mind probably went to religious things like worship music, worship service, house of worship, worship leader, things like that. But when you think about it, worship isn't just a Christian thing, and it isn't even limited to just religion. And so this week, we're going to be talking about the question, what is worship? And we're going to explore how some passages in the Bible speak into that question. In fact, that will lead us into another question, and that question is, what or who are we worshiping? We'll be part of the group for some important conversations about worship on Discover the Word. I'm Brian Hedinga. Welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. And on this episode, you'll be studying with Daniel Ryan Day, who is leading this What is Worship study. And at the table with him, or actually on the Zoom call with him, are Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, and Bill Crowder. And I think this will be a helpful hour or so we spend together, broadening our understanding of this idea of worship as it's used in the scriptures. Because it is a pretty important concept. I mean, it's reflected in the fact that the word worship is found hundreds of times all throughout both the Old and New Testaments. And so let's get started. And listen as Daniel asks that question again. And then I am interested to hear how Mart and Elisa and Bill respond. Worship. What comes to your mind when you hear the word worship? You know, what comes to my mind is how many different ways in which people think of worship. Yeah. Like there's sun worshipers, you know, in certain times of the year, we'd give anything to see the sun and go out and feel it on our skin. You know, I think of that. If I had to give an immediate answer, I would probably go to the expected place uh, because I have a son who is a worship pastor. So he leads worship every Sunday by leading them in singing worship songs. Mm -hmm. So there's three Mm -hmm. for one. Mm -hmm. So that would kind of refer to it as like a style of music. And probably references the place a little bit, too, of like being in a sanctuary or something like that. Actually, what pops in my mind quickly, and it did when you first asked the question, is the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. Mm -hmm. Because it takes me to Revelation, it takes me back to Isaiah, and I'm being all biblical here, but that's one of the ways I go boom to worship is these, you know, exalted, amazing, beyond life, celestial adorations of God kind of thing. So we've kind of talked about the word a little bit, places that we use the word, but how would we define the word worship? What are some ideas that come to mind for how we might define what worship even is? Well, it comes from an old English word, which was worth-ship, which meant to honor or declare the worth of something. So yeah, giving worth or honor to something. Is there any other nuance that we would add to it as well? Well, over the years, as I've tried to embrace it, and I'm not a super musical person, so maybe that leaves me out of some elements of worship. And I have been in liturgical churches, but I'm not currently. So, you know, over the years, the way I've come to 
understand worship in my daily small world is loving God, just Mm. loving him, letting him love me and loving him back. I think, too, sometimes it helps me just to get outside of the religious category Mm -hmm. and think in terms of what is worship to people in a non-religious sense. You talk about, well, he worships that athlete or she worships that teacher. There's a sense in which you you just, you're enamored by. Mm -hmm. You're caught up in your sense of loving this person. I mean, this is the person who sort of helps define my life if I'm worshiping him. Mm-hmm. That's good. Or in the very least, they're in awe of them, right? Yeah. Um, like with a celebrity or a famous person, you know, you might hear somebody say, she worships the ground he walks on or yeah. something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, or he worships the ground she walks on. <laughs> yeah. 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 Just yeah. to be fair. Yeah. And we're actually going to talk a little bit about the way that word is used outside of a religious context in one of the upcoming parts of this conversation. Another nuance that I think of is a lot of people will talk about going to worship. Mm. So they would kind of define worship as going to church. Mm. Let's take it another step further. So we've, we've talked about what comes into our mind when we think about worship, what the word worship means, at least in how we understand it right now. And then how would we define a worshiper? Someone who worships. Yeah, I guess so. yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to go back to what I said about loving God. You know, for me, mm-hmm. it's someone who is loving God. And you can worship, you know, through service. You can worship through study. You can worship through music. You can worship through relationships. You know, there's a lot of ways to express our adoration of God in our lives in worship. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I love what we've done in this conversation so far, because I think what we're showing, right, is that worship is a word we actually throw around quite a bit. Right? We have lots of different ideas about what we mean, but with all the nuance that we've just described, it's actually a pretty abstract idea mm-hmm. to get our minds around this idea. And oftentimes, I think that's maybe why one of our defaults is to refer to a style of music as worship. Because it's such an abstract idea, that's at least one way where we can kind of put guardrails into understanding the idea, Mm -hmm. which I think is helpful. And we'll talk about that as well in one of the parts of this conversation. Worship is like adoration or singing. But this week, I want to kind of push us to engage with the mysterious aspects of worship. And I also want us to consider like how Jesus might define worship, which I think would be a good place for us to start with this first conversation. The English word worship is used nearly 200 times in the Bible, beginning in Genesis and going through almost every single book all the way to Revelation. And so I thought maybe for today, let's start with probably a pretty famous passage about worship. It might even be the first one that comes to mind for some people. And it's John chapter four. We're going to specifically look at verses 23 and 24. And just to kind of give ourselves a little context, the word worship shows up several times in this passage, and it's a word that we get um, an English idea of to prostrate oneself from, or to fall down, lay down, to kneel before something. So when we hear that word, that's kind of the definition behind the word that we'll hear. But let's go ahead and read John 4, 23 through 24, and then we're going to talk about what the context is for this passage. Mark, would you read that for us? Okay, Jesus is speaking. And he says, but the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is a spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
talk about mystery, right? <laughs> and kind of some mystical ideas there, spirit and truth. And what is the context for what's happening in John chapter 4? Yeah, this is the uh, woman has met Jesus at a well, mm-hmm. a Samaritan woman. And um, she's going in the middle of the day because um, that's the only time she's really able to go without without undergoing some pretty severe abuse by others who don't accept her. And she meets Jesus there, and he asks her to get him a drink of water. And they have this very amazing, powerful, spiritual mm-hmm. conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what was it about her that would mean that she would go in the middle of the day and not when people would typically go to the well? Well, evidently, she'd been in many, many relationships with many men. Mm-hmm. And as such, she'd been ostracized slashed rejected is what we understand. Yeah, and we get a a feel from the story, especially in verse 29 of chapter 4, that it's kind of a small town. Everybody knows about her and knows kind of what she's done. Um, And she does very much feel most likely on the outside of the community. But Jesus talks to her, and this kind of blows her away. Mm -hmm. And why is that? He's a Jew, and she's Mm -hmm. a Samaritan, and they didn't have any contact with one another. Plus, He's a man and she's a woman, and that could lead to all kinds of concerns about what he might really be talking to her about. She doesn't know him, and all of a sudden he starts talking to her. That would have been very unusual. Yeah. And, of course, we know a little bit of history between the Samaritans and the Jews, and the Jews did not look kindly on the Samaritans, partially because they were a mixed-race people. And so there was like a a level of um, almost racial injustice there, but also because the Samaritans, according to Josephus, at least about 20 years before Jesus was there, had actually desecrated the temple by scattering human bones in the courtyard during Passover, which would have been like bringing uncleanliness to the temple. Daniel, are you talking about the temple in Jerusalem? The temple in Jerusalem. Okay. Yeah. And so there was a lot of uh, dislike among those people groups. And so, Bill, exactly what you're talking about, this first shocking thing is that it's a a Jew talking to a Samaritan, and then even much more so the fact that it was a man and a woman, and then not just a man and any woman, but a woman who had been ostracized for a lifestyle that was complicated, to say the least, right? Yeah, because in all likelihood, from what we know, about Jewish divorce law, if she'd had five husbands, as Jesus says, probably the ends of those marriages were not her choices. She didn't have a whole lot of say in it. And so she's being ostracized, possibly even for things that weren't even her doing. Mm -hmm. So Daniel, what does this have to do with worship? Yeah. So they end up in this conversation, um, and it's a, a conversation that's kind of confusing. It's about water and about living water. And Jesus is offering her this water that means she'll never thirst again, which I think she's rightly confused by in the same way that we would if Jesus showed up and said, I want to give you water that means you'll never thirst again. And then Jesus brings up her past. And this indicates to her that this is some kind of prophet from God, some kind of truth teller from God. And as a result of that, she presents a theological dilemma that's pretty sensitive and important to her people which is we've heard that legitimate worship doesn't happen unless we're in the right place, and that's the temple in Jerusalem. And so Jesus begins to explain worship. And 
One of the first things that I notice is that he says that the time is coming and it's already here where it's no longer about location, mm. which would be good news for her. And it should be good news for us, too, because we do, as we've already seen in our conversation, we've kind of been enculturated into thinking worship takes place in the church building. Yeah. But all of a sudden, worship is much bigger than just what happens in the church building. And Daniel, doesn't it come up that uh, she makes the comment that you Jews believe that worship happens in Jerusalem in your temple, but we Samaritans believe that it happens in our temple here? Yeah, and so there's this theological tension as well as the cultural tension as to where you can legitimately worship God. One of the things that Jesus is doing is he's removing this objection mm -hmm. to worship of it's no longer about the location. Instead, worship is about worshiping in spirit and in truth. And oftentimes when the Bible uses that phrase spirit, it's talking about like the innermost self of a person, the thing that kind of makes us tick, the uniqueness our souls, our whole person, personality, all that. It's like this innermost self. And so we have worship that is true, so like non-hypocritical or true to who our person is as we connect with God who also is this spirit. And so it's like this place where it's not about the location or the knowledge, but where our spirit connects with God's spirit, where we have this deep connection with God. And as a result of this interaction that this woman has, she becomes this evangelist and goes and shares this good news with all of her people who come out and are introduced to Jesus as well. And so just in this first conversation, I thought this would be a helpful place to start because that idea of worship is kind of confusing and maybe a little mystical. Um, but I think it also uncovers this first layer that it's not about location. It's not about like having special knowledge. Worship is first connecting with God in the deepest way. And I think what we'll see as we go throughout the other conversations is that that connection with God is directly tied to this relationship that we have with God and that true worship happens when we're walking in relationship with Him. We talked about this a little bit already, but is worship a Christian word? Why or why not? It's certainly a word that has Christian applications, but I don't think, mm -hmm. I mean, there are too many religions that engage in worship within the context of their faith system to say that it is a uniquely Christian word. Maybe I could put it that way. Yeah. And we've coined it in our popular language, using it of celebrities or loved ones or, mm -hmm. you know, even moments of life that are special to us, celebrations. You know, we worship this, we worship that, you know, so we've kind of coined it too. Yeah. But it just overlaps with people of every culture, mm -hmm. secular, religious. Mm -hmm. The worship means so much more than something that is uh, related to our personal faith. Mm -hmm. You know what I thought about as you were saying that, Mart, I remember the very first time, and this is, you know, some years ago, obviously, but the very first time that I saw a promotional ad on TV for the upcoming new series, American Idol. Oh, yes. <laughs> I immediately went to, okay, what's going to be the consequence here? Yeah. Are we going to be worshiping whoever wins this thing? Yeah. Because that's what you do with an idol, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Language matters and words have definitions mm. and idols are mm -hmm. there for a reason, you know. That's a great yeah. point, yeah. 
Yeah, speaking of music, I was on a run yesterday and my music was just shuffling and I ended up on Fly Me to the Moon. <laughs> and there's a there's a line in that that is, you are all I long for, all I worship and adore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which, let's be real, in that context, that should probably make us feel uncomfortable because we're talking about another person in general. But it's not a uniquely Christian word or Christian idea. It's used outside of the Christian faith quite a lot. And in our last conversation, we talked about how worship is connection with God. So it's not about a location. It's not about a certain expression, but it's about connecting with God. So today I want us to kind of turn and talk about worship as something that identifies us with God. And that's why it was important to talk about some of the other uses of the word worship, because I think what we're going to see as we talk through this is that who we worship identifies us as well Hmm. and the types of things that we worship. Hmm. And so let's consider that a little bit as we look to another pretty familiar passage of Scripture. And this is Exodus chapter 3. And let's read verses 11 and 12. Bill, would you read that for us? Sure. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Pause. What's going on so far? (laughs) Israel has been enslaved. First of all, they were residents of Egypt for hundreds of years And then they became enslaved in Mm -hmm. Egypt for a season. And uh, Moses is fixing to become the guy who's going to lead them out of there. Yeah. Fixing to become. I love that, Bill. That's Southern. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Keep reading for us, Bill. Okay. He said, and the he there is God. He said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall worship God on this mountain. So here's a passage where we have Moses in the wilderness. He wasn't always in the wilderness, was he? Where did he grow up? He grew up actually in Egypt. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. we've looked before at his story, but, you know, he was a Hebrew baby and his mom saved him by putting him in a basket in the Nile and Pharaoh's daughter discovered him and adopted Mm -hmm. him and he was raised in Pharaoh's court. Until. Why is he? Until. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why is he not in Egypt anymore? Yeah, he made a mistake and mm-hmm. um, ended up. Well, come um, on. Uh, he didn't make a mistake. He murdered a guy. There's okay. a difference. Okay. Making a mistake is one plus one equals three. <laughs> and so he ended up in big trouble and he fled. Yep. He fled to the wilderness. Yeah. And then God called him back eventually, right? Yeah. Called out to him. Yeah. So what would that be like? So we have this guy who murders someone else, runs away so that he isn't rightly prosecuted for what he did in Egypt. And then God comes to him and says, I want you to go back to that very place that you ran away from. That would be pretty intimidating, (laughs) if nothing else. Mm -hmm. And so I think we can understand why Moses is hesitant to go back even just for that reason, As we get to know Moses a little bit, there's a lot more to why Moses is hesitant to go back to Egypt as well. What are some of the other aspects of the conversation God and Moses have? How does Moses respond to God's invitation to go back over and over again? Well, here he says, who am I that I should do this? I mean, there's a sense of either unworthiness or a lack of place or standing Mm -hmm. uh, to go and stand before who arguably at that time was 
the most powerful person in the world, the Pharaoh of Egypt. Yeah. And he talked too about having even difficulty expressing himself. He doesn't see himself as being yeah. statesmanlike, somebody who could yeah. go before the Pharaoh and make a good case for his people. It's a powerful excerpt because God reveals that he's the I am God, the Yahweh God. And mm-hmm. it's the first time if I'm remembering this right. And and so Moses is ironically saying, who am I? And God responds with, I am that I am. And he, mm-hmm. he connects Moses to his own person, his own identity in a very startling way, a way none of us mm-hmm. would feel adequate. We would all feel unworthy, I think. Yeah, that's so good, Elisa. And I think all of us have had those moments yeah. where we're like, who am I to do this? Yeah. Who am I to represent mm-hmm. God? Especially as Mart was kind of describing what it's like to be in a place to feel like you're outside of what you're even good at. Yeah. But there's another side to this too, Daniel, which is a little ironic in that Moses does not feel worthy to go and stand before Pharaoh, but he apparently feels worthy to argue with God. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point because sometimes we have the same types of conversations. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the amazing things about our God is he lets us Mm -hmm. sometimes push back against him. Absolutely. And then the promise that God gives Moses is, I will be with you, Mm -hmm. right? You're not going at this alone. Mm -hmm. I will be with you. And I'm going to give you a promise. And what's the promise that he gives Moses? You're going to worship God on this very mountain. So right where we're at right now, you're going to come out and you're going to worship me. And so worship is first this like uh, recognition that this God who is giving a promise is trustworthy. But then also it's this promise that Mm. you're going to see the fulfillment of this. And as a result, that's going to lead to worship. Eventually, Moses agrees, kind of, maybe a little (laughs) kicking and screaming to go to Egypt. And he goes to Pharaoh. And we end up in what some scholars have called a battle between the gods. So you have the God of Israel. And some scholars have said that each of the plagues represents one of the gods in Egypt that the people believed in. Let's flesh that out a little bit. What happens when Moses is in Egypt? What are some of these plagues that happened? What's going on there? Well, the first one is that the Nile River turns to blood, and the Nile was Mm -hmm. kind of one of the main gods of Egypt because that's what brought water to the crops and brought life and sustenance and everything. So the very fact that the first one was against the Nile would have been a huge eye-opener for the people of Egypt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we see that um, specifically Exodus chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. Mart, will you read that for us, Exodus 7, 16 and 17? Okay. So the Lord says, Then announced to him, meaning to Pharaoh, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to tell you, Let my people go, so they can worship me in the wilderness. Until now, you have refused to listen to him. So this is what the Lord says, I will show you that I am the Lord. Look, I will strike the water of the Nile with this staff in my hand, and the river will turn to blood. Mm. Yeah, so Moses comes and says, hey, let my people go and worship God in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says no, and then there's a plague, and then the same conversation, and Pharaoh says no again, and a plague, and the same conversation. And so again, we see this battle of Yahweh God, and these gods of Egypt, and slowly over time, Yahweh God, uh, the God of Israel, is being seen as this one true, all-powerful God. So the God that 
promised to Moses, I will be with you, is showing that he is with Moses. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, what ends up happening at the end of those plagues? Pharaoh eventually releases them and, Mm -hmm. in fact, almost wants to drive them out of the country um, because the, the plagues have taken such a toll. And I think that that's part of the story that we don't often tell is it's a little unsettling when you think about the devastation that oh, those yeah. plagues produced. I mean, it's shocking. Mm-hmm. It is so difficult. And it's a great statement of God of you've got to decide who you're going to worship. You've got to decide where you're going to throw your lot in. You've got to decide you know, who you're connect to. And then as you're saying here, Daniel, who you're going to belong to. Because that's where we put our worship is in who we connect to and who we see our identity in or who we belong to. And, you know, Moses is going, who am I? And God's going, you're mine. And, you know, it's like he says to Pharaoh, you know, you can not be mine. Okay. And this is the disaster that will happen as a result. Or those who are mine can be brought forth and can then be free to worship Mm. me, the one true God. And in the process, the, the gods of the Egyptians then were demoted, right? It was bringing them down. Shown to be not worthy. Yeah. 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 And so the end of at least this part of the story is Israel ends up at the mountain where God promised that I will be with you. And as a result of me being with you, you and the people will end up at this mountain and will worship me. And so not only do we see worship as this connection with God, as we talked about before, but we also see worship as uh, one of the things that identifies us Mm -hmm. with God. Yeah. By the time they got to this mountain, they had a story. I mean, they had this overwhelming story, and it would have been that overwhelming sense of God's presence that enabled them as a nation to lift up their hearts to him. You've rescued us from, from slavery, from bondage. That rescue, I think, would have unleashed their spirit and their sense of collective worship. But it also goes both directions because when God called Israel, he said to them, you will be my people. You will identify with me. But he also said, I will be your God. And he identifies with them too. And that's really something that we celebrate when we worship because not only are we his people, but he's our God. And so worship happens when we realize that God has responded that you're mine, just like he did to Moses. And that's the same way that he responds to us, is that you're mine, I will take care of you, follow me. And so worship is not only connection with God, but it's also identifying with the one true God. Yeah, worship is also about identifying with God, because in so many ways, what or who we worship uh, defines us. Worship is also about identity. Well, you're at the Discover the Word table with Mark DeHaan, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day, and our series is titled, What is Worship? Maybe you've just taken for granted that worship is a time in church when we all stand together and sing. But as we're learning this week, there's a whole lot more to it than that. And in our next conversation, we're going to talk about how you can worship when you see an amazing sunrise or sunset, when you stumble upon an exquisite view of the mountains, or when you hear a baby giggle, allowing those awe-inducing moments in life to draw us into worship of our great God is where we'll go next when the Discover the Word podcast continues after this quick timeout. 
Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries are committed to making the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. And one of the ways we do that is through our Discovery Series. Now, the Discovery Series offers more than 200 Bible-based teachings that range from studies of sections of Scripture to topics on how to live everyday life as a follower of Jesus. And the Discovery Series book that I'd like to point you to is one called, What is Worship? As we're discovering in our conversations, a lot of Christians would answer that question by saying, well, worship is what we do when we sing songs together in church. But while that may be part of it, uh, we're seeing that certainly that's not all of it. And I think you'll find that the Discovery Series booklet, What is Worship? is a helpful resource. We have a link on our discovertheword.org website that will take you to it, and I hope you'll check it out. And now Daniel takes the group to the Psalms to discover another aspect of worship. What are some things that are awe-inspiring? Mm. A few years ago, I was in Brazil, and at the border of Brazil and Argentina are the Iguazu Falls. They're like the largest waterfalls in the world, mm. and the sound was just almost suffocating. It was so mm. impressive. It's beautiful. You know, I've been in a redwood forest, I think only mm. once, but I was just overwhelmed by the size of those trees. Mm. Yeah. And you know what? Where I go, Daniel, is to a baby who begins mm. to giggle. <laughs> so amazing. And you can't help but respond with your own giggle, you know. Mm. How do we even define that idea, awe-inspiring? Yeah, it, it, for me, it's kind of anything that sort of takes your breath away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, <gasps> Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about Mart's Redwood Forest and, and me with a yep. baby. It's like something bigger than me, different from mm-hmm. me, other than me, something I could never really accomplish Something we couldn't maybe even create or fabricate Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. replicate. Yeah, even though you might give birth to a baby, it's still this wondrous thing of how did that happen. Yeah, and I almost think, too, in my life, the times where how healthy I am emotionally can be seen in whether or not I'm able to be inspired Mm -hmm. by awe, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's times where I'll be amazed by a sunrise and then the next day, it's mm-hmm. not as awe-inspiring or yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah, it, it is a state of mind. There's no question about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I know that uh, the first time that I went to Israel, I remember when our bus crested over the hill, and we looked down, and for the first time, we saw the Sea of Galilee. Hmm. And uh, when you visit Israel, you see a lot of places where something might have happened. Maybe we're not sure, but it could have. Uh, but when you see the Sea of Galilee, you know, Jesus was there. You know, mm-hmm. uh, he walked on that water. He walked along those shores. And it just it was one of those moments of like unbelievable reality mm-hmm. to the stories that I'd read all my life. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. what a great example. And, you know, that kind of ties in pretty well with what we're going to be talking about today because we've been talking about worship and how worship connects us with God, uh, how it identifies us with God. And in this conversation, I kind of want to spend time talking about our typical kind of understanding of worship, which is like this awe-inspiring nature of worship, of running into those things that make us look at God and go, wow, you're so much bigger than I imagined. And so... Let's turn to Psalm 29, and this is a passage that I think if we had to define worship, this is probably a passage we'd come to and say, you know, it's like that. 
We're actually going to visit most of the psalm throughout this conversation, but I want to start just by pulling out verses 1 and 2. So, Elisa, would you read that for us, Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2? I bet. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Hmm. All right. So do you see the word worship there? Yes. This word worship means to bow down. And it kind of comes from a root of a word that means to declare or to tell. So we kind of see both of that happening here, right? We have being amazed by God's presence, his holy splendor is the phrase that's used. So you have this bowing down before this great and mighty God, but then also a scribe, which is the telling Hmm. about who God is, the describing who God is. Which makes me pop back to what you were saying a few minutes ago, Daniel, that we can become glib almost. And one day we are awe and inspired and the next day we miss it. There seems to be a great intentionality here. Ascribe Mm -hmm. to the Lord, pay attention. It's noteworthy uh, what he's done and who he is, and therefore we worship. Yeah, that's good. And what is the first thing that he is paying attention to or describing? God's what? Glory and strength. Glory and strength. And maybe it's the strength part that we were talking about when we were thinking about redwoods and mm-hmm. and waterfalls <laughs> and things like that. When you think how powerful or how huge those things are, and yet the God who spoke them into being must be so much more. Yeah. What do you think he had in mind when he talked about his glory? Yeah, that's a great question, Mark. I was looking a little bit into the word glory itself, actually, because I was curious. That's a word that we throw around a lot. And I was like, what does that really mean, glory? And the word kind of describes beauty in the way something is arrayed or dressed. So like think of a, a bride maybe in a wedding dress, like she's in her glory, or a king or queen who is completely decked out with their crown and everything. Uh, That's kind of what the word implies, like this wealth or abundance, but also being arrayed in like the most beautiful way that they could be presented. Hmm. One of the things we've talked about before, Daniel, is that words have ranges of meaning. And Mm -hmm. I remember reading Kenneth Bailey, who's a name that we remember fondly here on the program from time to time. And he said that uh, the word has to do with significance, yeah. When you ascribe to the Lord glory, you are ascribing to him worth and significance and declaring him to be very, very significant beyond anything else. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes you hear the word weight used uh, mm-hmm. with glory as well, that there's this weight. W-E-I-G-H-T, mm-hmm. heaviness. Yeah, mm-hmm. heaviness mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. God's name because he's so other than uh-huh. we are. And we kind of see that described throughout this psalm, actually. We have a lot of phrases that kind of describe this glorious strength of God. In verse 3, it talks about the voice of the Lord over the waters. And what's interesting about the waters in an ancient context is the waters were seen as the place where the underworld met the earth. So it was a very scary place. And so the fact that God's voice would be over the waters is a poetic way of saying that like even in those scary places, God is there. Even just that language over the waters, we think of like at creation with God's spirit Mm -hmm. hovering over the waters and then all of Mm -hmm. this beautiful creation coming out of God's voice that says, let there be light or let there be animals or let there be plants. And then it happens. And so this voice of the Lord hovering over the waters 
Could there also be something in their national memory, Daniel, about the way God parted the Red yep. Sea um, mm. and his voice, in a sense, on the waters there mm. to mm. give them rescue from uh, from Egypt? Yeah, mm. absolutely. And we have even more of a benefit because we have the New Testament. And how does God show himself over the scary waters in the New Testament? Well, he stills them. Peter walks on them. Uh, Jesus is baptized in them uh, quite a few ways. So as we kind of go through this psalm, I think what we see is like at the beginning, it says power and majesty, but then the psalmist is like giving us nuance to what is this power that we're describing? What is this glory, Mart, that you referred to? What is this splendor? One of the really fascinating parts to me was in verse five, where it talks about he breaks the cedars of Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon are actually, they show up throughout the scriptures in a few places. What are some of the ways they're referenced in the Bible? Weren't they part of what was used to build the temple in Jerusalem? Mm -hmm. And there's actually um, some ancient history there that not only were they used to build the temple in Jerusalem, but whoever the world power was that kind of came into power would often use the cedars of Lebanon as not only for good building materials, because they were, but also as this example of power and of strength and of control. And so if God is so powerful that the cedars of Lebanon break, what does that say about Mm -hmm. who this God is? He's more powerful than all. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we have him flashing forth like flames of fire in verse 7. We have the oaks that whirl, (laughs) um, that his voice strips the forest bare. And then in verse 10, he sits enthroned over the world, over our lives. But all of this builds to verse 11, and I think this is really maybe the place where when we think about worship, we can think about awe, and we can think about power, and we can think about God's glory. But I think it's verse 11 that is the inspiration behind why we look at God in awe Mm -hmm. and we feel safe. What does Mm -hmm. verse 11 say? Yeah, this is good, Daniel. It says, the Lord gives his people strength. The Lord blesses them with peace. How does that strike you in the context of this psalm? It's a dramatic contrast and also a validation of what we've been saying. We ascribe to God the reality that he's way, way more than we are. Mm -hmm. And that's awe-inspiring, and yet it's stunningly and maybe counterintuitively, he draws us close, Mm -hmm. safely close to his awe becomes very personal at this point, doesn't it? Yeah. I think also when you see all the things that you've been unpacking from the psalm, Daniel, most of those are displays of great strength. And then he says, the Lord gives strength to his people. So all of this strength that is what gives us reason for awe and reason to see him as glorious and substantial is also the strength that he imparts to us Mm -hmm. when we're weak and when we're frail and when we need it. So if he has the strength to do all that, mm-hmm. I can be pretty confident that no matter what I'm struggling with, he's got enough strength to help me with that as well. Yes, because it speaks to how he uses his strength. Mm. God doesn't use his strength to just break cedars. He doesn't use his strength to spit forth fire. God uses his strength to bless his people, to strengthen them, mm-hmm. and to bring them peace which means that whatever situation that we're in, we can worship God by looking at him with this awe, knowing that yes, we are small and he is great, 
but he uses his greatness to love us and to care for us. What is hypocrisy? Oh. <laughs> There's a word we throw around a lot, right? Something other than me. And I say it that way because it's usually something we recognize in others, but not so much in ourselves. Very well said, yeah. But when we do see it in ourselves, it feels awful. You know? yeah, oh, yeah, it's it's just fakeness. It's bottom line, mm-hmm. being different yeah. on the inside and the outside. You don't have integrity. You're not whole. Mm-hmm. You're faking it. Yeah. The classic walk the talk right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you can say things, but Mm -hmm. how you live is going to show what you really believe or what you really think. Mm -hmm. It's when you say one thing, but you do something else. That Mm -hmm. would be hypocrisy. Yeah. I just feel it so much whenever I'm working with the scriptures or especially when I realize that I'm going to get up before somebody and talk about the scriptures, talk Mm -hmm. about the Lord. And you just realize, oh man, how far short I fall from the kind of love, the kind of selflessness that the scriptures call for. And that's not to say that I feel like I'm a big fake, except in those moments. <laughs> that's right. You know, you just, man, there's a lot of space here between mm-hmm. the, what this mm-hmm. calls for mm-hmm. and what I actually am. Mm. I would go to the other end of the prospect, and it's this. When I was a pastor, 45 weeks a year, I'd have to do three new sermons every week, and so you kind of turn into a machine after a while. So I knew I would be getting up and speaking, and there were times afterwards when I felt like a hypocrite because I had had all of this call to action and here's what the scriptures say and all this kind of stuff, but I knew that I was just doing what my job was, mm-hmm. that it really hadn't taken root in me, even mm-hmm. though I'd just preached about it. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, Bill. I can remember many times when I've shared, taught, whatever, and came away going, you know, people would say, thank you, and I, you know, God met me or whatever, but I missed it. You know, yeah. it didn't connect with me. And to me, that's one of the hypocritical things. Yeah, and I don't know if I can really explain it. Sometimes it's not that I don't believe it. It's like you can be expressing something that you, you know is true, mm-hmm. but it's almost like in those moments, we're being honest and expressing it but just falling so far short in reality. And, you know, back in the day, you know, Haddon Robinson, who was with us for so many years on this program, the first step in offering a message is to preach it to yourself. Mm. Because if you don't preach it to yourself, you know, you're not offering anything with integrity. You're being hypocritical. And that has haunted me for years, you know, to take Mm. the time to let the word sift down into our own lives before we think we're sharing it with somebody else. It's humbling, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have experienced a lot of what the three of you are describing, but the first example that comes to mind is when I tend to act like I either know something that I don't know. So like somebody will be talking about a subject and I'll be with them and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's right. (laughs) That situation would be tough or whatever. And I have no idea what they're even talking about. Mm. Um, But I feel some kind of pressure to act like I'm engaged or act like I know. Mm. Or when it comes to my faith journey, the times where I'll act like I care for someone or that I'm engaged in conversation with them by going, hmm, hmm. <laughs> That's good, yeah. But really inside I'm thinking about something else or I actually don't mm-hmm. feel the way that I'm acting. 
I think sometimes hypocrisy can show up in our lives in really surprising ways, too, that are so subtle. Mm-hmm. It's easy almost to look at like the big things where I say this, but I do that. Sometimes it's hard to see those very subtle things where we're playing a part. Mm-hmm. And we're in this series of talking about worship, and we've talked about how worship is connection with God. It's identifying with God. Um, it's discovering that we can be in awe of a God that is so powerful but uses his power to bring us strength and peace. But there's also this theme in the Bible of fake worship, worship that is hypocritical. And uh, there's a helpful passage, I think, that we can look at where we'll see this. And it's Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. Elisa, would you go ahead and read verses 7 through 9 and listen for the word worship? So the context is some Pharisees and teachers of the law are talking to Jesus and saying, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Okay, so Jesus says, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Wow. So where did we see the word worship used there? In verse 9, they worship me in vain. They worship me in vain. So there's something about hypocrisy that can lead us to even worshiping God in vain or with this fake worship. You know, in the NLT says uh, their worship is a farce. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, so almost a, a going through the motions or an acting like we're worshiping, but really inside nothing's happening. He mentions quoting from the prophet Isaiah, so I thought it might be helpful to read where that quotation Mm -hmm. comes from. Bill, if you'll read Isaiah 29, verses 13 through 16, I think this really helps us see maybe what Jesus is driving at. Sure. Isaiah 29, verse 13, the Lord said, because these people draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is a human commandment learned by rote. So I will again do amazing things with this people, shocking and amazing. The wisdom of their wise shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning shall be hidden. Ha! You who hide a plan too deep for the Lord, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? Shall the thing made say of its maker, He did not make me? or the thing formed, save the one who formed it, he has no understanding. What are some of the words and phrases that jump out to you as you hear him describing this worship that is rote? <laughs> was the word I think he used. Well, the first phrase that caught me was, ha! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That'll wake you up. But you turn things upside down, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. was the phrase that caught me. Yeah. Yeah, and how are they turning things upside down? Well, they're saying that the God who made them is not the God who made them. And they're Mm -hmm. saying that the potter is more like the clay when actually they are the ones who were formed from clay. Yeah, There's this theme of them leaning on their own wisdom, their own understanding, as if they almost know better than God. Like, I have more perspective than God has. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And all of that stems from the way they're trying to honor God with their mouths and their lips. But where are their hearts? Mm. Their hearts are far from him. So, Daniel, do you think this would have been a a complete surprise to the people that he was talking to or not? Or do you think they would have recognized immediately, you know, he's talking about me? Hmm. 
you know, I can't speak for them, but in my own experience, when people have challenged blind spots or hypocrisy in me, Mm. it kind of (laughs) depends. There are times where I'm like, yeah, you're right. I've Mm. known deep down that I'm acting in a way that's different than what I say, Mm. that I believe. But Mm. then there's other times where it's like, no, I thought I was doing all the right Mm. things in Mm -hmm. worshiping. Mm -hmm. I kind of had a similar question, only directed to what Jesus said, because Jesus said, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. And I mean, we think so much of the time of Old Testament prophecy having a more general context, but Jesus is saying, Isaiah was saying this about you, and he points it directly at these individuals, and that would have to knock your socks off. Yeah. And to be really clear, you know, we've talked a lot about feeling inadequate when we try to approach the Word of God, or we've also talked about clear hypocrisy. You know, I think maybe most of us live somewhere in between those realities. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a way we lean into God and we want to honor Him, and we always feel inadequate, you know. And I think just being aware of our inadequacy Mm -hmm. is not hypocritical. That's like what God's asking for is the sincerity of heart. Maybe the issue is when we slide into, I've got this, you know, I've got this, Mm -hmm. that we teeter on the edge of the cliff, you know, Mm -hmm. in a bad spot. And sometimes maybe we do it for one another, too. I think there can be like a a culture that basically does a lot of rationalizing. Mm, And it's almost like as a community, we Mm -hmm. kind of express things or do things in a way that we say, yeah, this is what it's about, when in reality, it's not getting to the heart of of the matters at all. And you know, Mark, I think it's interesting in Matthew 15 that shortly after this, Jesus takes his disciples outside the community and outside of the Jewish culture to a foreign woman with a demonized daughter, Mm. and she worships Jesus. And it's almost like Jesus is showing them a purer worship in this foreign woman with heartache than these religious leaders were displaying Mm -hmm. in their service to God. You know, at the very beginning of the series, we talked about worshiping God in spirit and truth. And that's when like our inner person connects with God. Mm -hmm. And I think what we see in this passage is the opposite, right? It's when our head maybe is trying to connect with God or we're trying to play the part of connecting with God. But when we look deep inside, what's really happening is we're not really connecting with God for so many different reasons, right? Like it could be that we've just been going through the motions for a long time. And the invitation that we hear in this conversation is God's winsome cry to, hey, I love you and I want to be connected with you. Hmm. And I think the beauty of this conversation is that Jesus calls that out. One of the things that we know about who Jesus is, is he represents the heart of the Father, this heart of love. So in something that we may look at and see as a pretty intense thing to say to someone, you're a hypocrite. Isaiah prophesied rightly about you. The heart of Jesus, the heart of the Father behind that, is not for them to be condemned and push away and like, well, you're hypocrites, so you're just always going to be a hypocrite. Jesus is always looking to win those people over to have that deep connection and relationship Mm. with God. And so regardless of where we find ourselves today, maybe we find ourselves in danger of, of worshiping God without connecting with him. The invitation here is that our God is a God who wants to connect with us. And regardless of where we are, the invitation is the same. And that is that he is our God and he is a God that loves us, and he's a God that wants to be connected with us. And all we have to do is approach him with open hands and an open heart. 
God cares more about what's going on in our hearts. And that's a good caution about, as Jesus said, quoting Isaiah, honoring God with our lips and acting like we're worshiping when in fact our heart is far from him. That was a challenging call to authentic worship, helping us understand what worship is by taking note of what worship is not. Well, this is Discover the Word with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day, and they will wrap up this episode called What is Worship? by taking us to a passage that shows us that so often we're just scratching the surface when it comes to thinking about worship. But first, a quick break, previewing our next Discover the Word podcast. Are there some things in your past that you're not very proud of? In fact, you're pretty ashamed about the fact that they're part of your story. Shame is a powerful emotion. And so do you struggle with the shame that you brought on yourself or that you brought on those that love you? Have you ever thought that God might be ashamed of you? Well, on the next Discover the Word podcast, Bill Crowder leads some conversations called Unashamed. I wonder if as a young person or as a teenager or as a college student or whatever the case might be, I wonder if my feelings about God might have been different if I would have known that God, great as he is, holy as he is, perfect as he is, mm-hmm. is unashamed of me. Mm-hmm. Now, to me, that is a liberating idea. And yeah, don't miss our next study, Unashamed, on the Discover the Word podcast. And now the conclusion of our study, What is Worship? So the series has been on exploring the term worship and where it shows up in the Bible. What have we seen so far about different characteristics of what worship is or where it happens or what it means? What has jumped out to you so far? You know, what made so much sense to me was that when we talked about worship being a response to a a sense of what God has done for us, there's Mm -hmm. a sense of we've, oh, we've been rescued Look what he's done. We didn't expect that. It's so much different than what we were looking for, but it's it's so much better. And it's like yeah. when we can have that kind of awareness, worship just rises within us. Yeah, it's a lot different in that context, Mark, than just the kind of worship where somebody bows down to a God because if I don't, I might get squashed, you know, mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. But for it to have a heart response to what God's done is a totally different context for worshiping. Mm-hmm. That's actually been one of the pivotal things we've looked at um, in this conversation is that it really comes from our innermost heart connecting to God's innermost heart. You know, and Daniel, some of the passages you've led us to talk about the spirit, our spirit and God's spirit. Mm-hmm. And as I understand, that's our innermost heart. You know, it's who Mm -hmm. we truly, truly are. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And and so it's not just words, it's not just actions, it's really our very beings connecting Mm -hmm. to God's being and finding our worth there and our value there and His value in us. Mm -hmm. And that's really good, Elisa, because one of the things we've talked about is how much bigger worship is than just what happens inside a church building at a certain time of the week or something. I mean, I think back to the very first conversation, Daniel, from John 4, where You reminded us that worship is about connecting with God. It's not about the location that we're in. Mm -hmm. It's not about how much we do or do not know. It's not about certain activities Mm -hmm. or anything. It's really about 
relating to him and allowing him to relate to us. Mm. And in our last conversation, we talked about worship that is fake. Mm. Yeah. Mark, what was the word that the New Living Translation used? Uh, it says it's a farce. Yeah. When is worship fake? I think kind of the, what we're saying is when we are disconnected, <laughs> when, yeah. when we're not our true inner person connecting to God's being, when we're just trying to do the surface. And don't we all do that at times? It's yeah. like we yeah. lose hold of where we really are and we just go through the motions. Oh, here's my quiet time. Oh, here's my, my 10% tithe. Oh, oh, here's my going to church. You know, But my mm-hmm. heart's back watching the Broncos or my heart is with my family and where they are in life or something. You know, I just It's like I unplug instead of plug in. And that's so important because it really is a disconnect that we're not even necessarily aware of. You know, what I love about what you just said, Elisa, is I think what we're going to see today as we look at one more passage on worship is that we feel like it's disconnected because our hearts are with our family or at home or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think where the Bible leads us is to worship that not only is not bound to a location, but it's the way that we live. It's wherever we are today is an invitation to worship. And I don't think a, there's a better passage to describe that than Romans chapter 12, mm-hmm. verses 1 and 2, which is kind of where I, I think would be a good place for us to end our series on worship. Let's read that. And uh, Elisa, since you brought up the disconnection, um, <laughs> will you read Romans 12, verses 1 through okay. 2 for us? All right, Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters... In view of God's mercy, which reminds me of what you said, Mart, you know, in view of all God's done for Mm us, Mm -hmm. offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So did you hear the word worship used there? Yeah. How is worship described and defined in this passage? By giving ourselves to him totally. Yeah. Yeah, instead of a burnt offering of an animal to please the need Hmm. for sacrifice, we give our beings, you know, our living Mm -hmm. sacrifice. It's not even our bodies. It's our beings. You know, that's the living sacrifice, a daily turning over of ourselves to him. Yeah, and so many sermons have been preached on just the oxymoron, right, of a living sacrifice. Sure. Something that is killed, but is also alive, (laughs) which always reminds me of where Jesus says to truly live is to take up our cross Mm -hmm. and to follow him, right? So you have another, Mm -hmm. wait, how does that work? Death to life. And really it all comes back to what Paul said just before those first words in chapter 12, right? Yeah. This flows like a river over the waterfalls of what he said just prior to that. Yeah. In fact, I would say, Mart, it's not just what's prior, but the whole first 11 chapters, right, Mm. are kind of building this momentum of describing human brokenness, describing our need for some kind of redemption that we can't do for ourselves, And then Paul spends a lot of time talking about this Old Testament law that couldn't rescue, that was good, but it offered an impossible way for us to Mm -hmm. actually come to God. And then Christ comes and he lives that law out. And then as a result of Christ's death and resurrection, we're invited to experience becoming a living sacrifice and to worship God through the way that we live. 
And so you're right. It's this whole like leading up to Romans chapter 12, where it begins describing what new life in Christ looks like, but it's only possible because of what Christ had already done. Okay, I'm going to say the whole Bible says that, Daniel. I'm going to say the whole Bible tells that story. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And yet, if I'm hearing you right, Daniel, you could take everything that you're saying about Romans 1 through 11, or as Elisa said, from the whole Bible, (laughs) and it all wraps up in the phrase, by the mercies of God. Mm. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, by the mercies of God. And then what happens kind of after these two verses? So... You know, Romans, there's been a lot of different ways that Romans been described. Some people describe it as like two movements. First is like the setup, 1 through 11. And then from Romans 12 and on, it kind of describes like the implications of the setup. So what kind of happens from Romans 12 through the end of the book? What is Paul calling his audience to and describing? Well, it's a different kind of life. It's a life lived out in freedom, not under the bondage of the law. It's a life lived out in relationship with God and one another in a way that's marked by the fact that we are people who have received mercy as opposed to judgment. And so everything in life gets changed in the way we attack life, in a sense, because of what God's done for us in showing mercy to Mm -hmm. us. I think there's a way in which, and I think we forget this, our worship is lived out in our lives, but our lives are lived out in community. Mm-hmm. And God has designed us to be in community. And so our everyday interactions, whether they're with family or friends or formally in the body of Christ, that's where we live out this sacrifice. Mm-hmm. It really is expressed in a corporate, in a communal mm-hmm. way yeah. of worshiping God. Right. And we especially see that in Romans 13 through 15, where this new life in Christ directly impacts the way that we treat and engage with one another. Mm-hmm. And so it does. It, it ends up impacting every single area of our lives. And it's interesting because in this passage too, he focuses in on these two words where he says, do not be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if you were to kind of just quickly define those words, right? Conformed is kind of to be shaped by something. Mm-hmm. Transformed is to be made into something new, mm. right? You know, if you're going to conform something, you're going to take something and you're going to make it look like something else. You're going to shape it. But to be transformed is the same word like to be transfigured, like Jesus when he was shown for who he really was with all his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so it's to be changed, to be made into something new. And that's what we see in this passage is true worship is being made new so much so that it impacts every area of our lives. And so as we think about like all the different pieces of worship that we've talked about, how does this part of the conversation kind of bring into context maybe some of the other pieces that we've seen as we've gone? Well, I go back to the very first conversation, Daniel, when you reminded us that worship can be or feel a little abstract a little mysterious, a little mystical, and all of a sudden it feels much more practical. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels approachable. It feels every day. It still is awe-inspiring and other than and all those things we've talked about. The true sincerity of it is just from my being, being inclined towards God's being in all that I do and who I relate with. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I think... Daniel, you started out talking about how this flows out of the mercies of God. And I think at that point, yeah, 
It can be mystical at times, but when I'm aware of the fact that God has rescued me, it feels so concrete. Mm -hmm. There's so Mm -hmm. much substance when I realize that, oh, good night, I messed up. Or I was in a spot that looked like I was a goner. And out of the blue comes this real sense of God's provision. And, And my misery was overwhelmed by his mercy. I think out of that comes this natural kind of of expression of worship. Yeah. yeah. And the invitation to express that is it's not about a location. It's not about having the right words. It's not about singing the right songs. But that expression, wherever you're at today, can come out not only in what you say and in what you do, but it could even just be sitting quietly with the recognition of this all-powerful, all-inspiring God who comes to you now and says, you are mine, right? Just like Moses said, who am I? God comes to us and says, you are mine. And in that moment of connection with God, regardless of where we are, we can be invited to worship without having to do something special, but simply by being with God. A great conclusion to this conversation called, What is Worship? Thank you, Daniel, for leading us in this discussion. I think we've all been challenged to reconsider our definition of worship and find new ways to worship God in our daily walk of faith. You've been listening to Discover the Word with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ and always points us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. I encourage you to explore other studies with the group on our discovertheword.org website. Our mission in all we do here at Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries is to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. And if you'd like to come alongside and partner with us in this ministry, we would invite you to lend your financial support. Simply go online to discovertheword.org and click the Donate button. You'll see some options and you can give right there. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.